Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Dick Boak, author of The Martin Archives. Dick Boak, if someone buys this book, the C.F. Martin Archives, what do they get? Well, you know, it was a really fun project, and this is what we would call an ephemera book. Maybe you've seen these in the bookstores. Uh, there are pockets inside the book that uh, are like envelopes, and you open them up. And in the pockets, there are uh, uh, different things. There's uh, a couple of catalogs, uh, one from 1929, one from 1935. There's... Uh, uh, you know, some letters, a letter from Gene Autry. Yeah, here's and, a letter from Gene Autry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a letter from Jimmy, Jimmy Rogers yeah. and, and just fun things. Uh, uh, I, I guess about 15 or 20 different uh, pieces of ephemera. If you, is there literally an attic at Martin somewhere that you crawl around in and find all this stuff? Well, um, about 20 years ago, uh, maybe a little more, um, I was doing research with two authors that came to Martin and wanted to uh, uh, do a thorough book about the history of Martin guitars. And toward the end, they spent a whole week with me going through everything that I had uh, over at the factory. And we were looking at in, uh, in an inventory of things uh, that were tucked away in different places. We didn't have one consolidated place for the archives. And they noticed that there was a, a, a notation that there were boxes over in the attic at North Street. And um, uh, we, we went over on their last day. And in the in, you know, padlocked door, you go into the old section of the attic and all the way back at the, at the end. And there's no electricity back there. And, and we're just working through the light of the window. A um, bunch of boxes covered in, in about a half an inch of Brazilian rosewood sawdust. And uh, we opened uh, uh, one of them up, and right on top there was a, a letter from Mother Maybell Carter. And, and uh, these boxes hadn't been opened in, you know, half a century. So the, a lot of the letters and correspondences were going back to the 1800s, to 1830 and 1840, wrapped in burlap. And, and uh, we took them out and unpacked them and went through, and, and that really... Uh, uh, set the stage for what would happen with the archives in the last couple of decades. You have the Mabel Carter letter um, reproduced here where she we writes do. to the yeah. company. I guess she was just starting her career with the Carter family then? Yeah, and she was worried that Mr. Martin didn't know who she was. <laughs> so she said, I mean, she plays with this band called the Carter family. I record and, on and, the Victor label, yeah. I think she said, yeah. And was looking into a Hawaiian guitar. Right. So Hawaiian guitars would have had the strings high up off the fingerboard with the frets ground flat and only therefore positioned like a pedal steel guitar, played with a slide, and, and all the rage back then. She was an amazing guitar player. 
Now, if somebody doesn't know anything about Martin Guitars, what should they know? Well, they should know that Martin is the oldest guitar company surviving in the world, that we uh, um, are the most revered and respected guitar company in the world, that we've been in business since 1833, that we are uh, six going on seven generations of family-owned uh, oversight of the company, that we are, are known and our guitars are prized for their craftsmanship, their design, but most importantly, their tone. So I think those are the basics. Uh, uh, we have a very special heritage, and I feel it's our responsibility to preserve it and extend it. Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Nazareth, PA. The company started originally in New York City. Um, C.F. Martin and his uh, young family uh, came over from Mark Neukirchen, Germany, which is uh, near the border of the Czech Republic, and settled in New York City in 1833, uh, right near what is now the mouth of the Holland Tunnel. And uh, there's actually a bronze plaque there on the side of the David Yurman building on Hudson Street. Um, they stayed in New York for six years. They were very unhappy there, um, but they were very successful. Mrs. Martin cried at Christmas time and, and begged to go back to Germany. Um, New York was not a fun place to be. Pigs, horses, cattle running in the streets, ethnic fighting, pretty much the way New York City is today. And uh, so uh, instead, she came out to Nazareth, visited some friends. Nazareth was a Germanic community, a closed commune of Moravians. And she just loved the town. And, and uh, she went back and read the Riot Act. Uh, CF sold his property in New York City. We wish they hadn't because it's worth about a billion dollars now. Uh, but they came out to Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, instead of focusing on being a, a, a full-line music store with flutes and flugelhorns, uh, he focused on guitar making, which was his first love, and uh, had tremendous success and, and built upon that success. When he passed away, his son took over, C.F. Jr., and then his son, Frank Henry Martin, and then his son, C.F. Martin III, and then his son, Frank Herbert Martin, and then his son, C.F. Martin IV. And C.F. Martin IV has a daughter uh, named Claire Frances Martin. That's C.F. Martin. And she's the seventh generation, and she's, I think, 12 years old right now. We're being very nice to her. Does she have a choice but to go into the family well, business? I think she does. I think she does, and we, we certainly hope that she does. She's going to play a part in the business regardless. If you played a, a Martin guitar from the 1830s, 1840s, what would it have been like? Well, these were small guitars. They were parlor guitars. And um, parlor guitars were typically played by women. Uh, the men were off smoking their cigars and fighting wars or doing business. And the women were expected to be cultural. They played piano, uh, guitar, uh, did watercolors and uh, uh, entertained guests in the parlor of the home. So the guitar uh, was uh, popularized uh, during this time between eight, really 1840 and 1890, pretty much as a, a woman's instrument, small and gut strung, uh, very much like the classical guitars of today. You brought along a picture, a, a daguerreotype that yes. uh, is a part of the Martin uh, collection. Can you 
talk yeah, about this? Yeah, this is the thing? oldest photograph in our collection, and, and it's a photograph of uh, uh, Dolores Degoni, uh, Madame Degoni, and she was very exotic guitar player from Spain. Um, she played in kind of the Vestapol uh, Spanish tradition uh, style of playing. Um, and she was very exotic and, and extremely popular in America. She, she played concerts in New York City, but then she toured from Maine all the way down to Texas. And, um, you know, a concert back then was not exactly Madison Square Garden. It was more a small room because the guitar couldn't be heard for more than 25 or 30 feet. And, um, but nonetheless, she was, very, she was very popular. She came to Nazareth uh, skeptical she was doing a concert in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for the Moravians. And uh, she decided she would visit this Martin that she'd heard all about. She was playing a guitar that was made in Spain and she was pretty confident that it was better than anything that could come from the United States. Martin, in the meantime, had made a special guitar just for her. Uh, and he handed it to her and she played it. She was completely blown away by it and set her, her guitar aside and, and became Martin's first endorsee of the instrument. Traveled up and down uh, the coast and, and um, extolling the virtues of this guitar. And the result was that uh, people started to order the Dagoni model, uh, a replica really of her guitar. But the interesting thing about her guitar is that the it's the very first guitar that we know of that Martin made with X braces. And Martin really invented the X-Brace, apparently with Madame Dagoni's guitar, 1842-1843 uh, time period. And we've not seen any other instrument that, that um, uh, has that type of bracing. Of course, nowadays, uh, virtually every single acoustic guitar in the world copies Martin, Martin's X-Design. What does the X-Brace do? Well, the X-Brace, uh, see, before X-Bracing, the braces were called fan bracing. There was, a, there was quite a lot of them, and they formed a fan on the inside of the guitar to strengthen the, the top so that it wouldn't collapse. The problem was that, that uh, Martin liked a bridge that had bridge pins uh, and holes through the top. So when he drilled the holes, he was running into the braces. So what he did is he started to move the, the fan braces outward to get them away from the bridge, and, in the, and he realized that moving them outward, he could simply extend them, get rid of all the, the uh, extraneous braces, and have something that was lighter and more uh, vibrating and better sounding. And that's what he did. And so it was uh, uh, popularized uh, in, in the early 1800s, and, and especially when steel strings came in in the early 1900s, uh, the X bracing really uh, benefited because uh, all of the stress, uh, all the pull, about 150, 160 pounds of pull on the top are distributed onto the shoulders of the guitar by the X-Brace. How long can a guitar last? I mean, you have violins that were made in the 1650s, 1680s that are still played all the time now. Can guitars have that kind of staying power? Well, guitars are uh, highly mobile, and they often uh, are are damaged in the amount of transit that they receive. But we have guitars that are in virtually perfect condition from the 1830s and play and sound magnificent. Oh, they're played? Oh, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, 
uh, visitors come to the museum, and if I'm around, I have the keys right in my pocket. And uh, uh, we, we try to keep the instruments strong. The, the instruments really, uh, they hate to be locked up in a glass cage. They love to be played. They're made to be played. It's, it's almost criminal to not have them be played. So if, if a, a fairly important visitor comes, I remember John Mayer came by and, and uh, can I play that one? I want to play that one. He wanted to play everything. And we've had, we've had tremendous visitors, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Willie Nelson, and everybody you could imagine. We love to get the instruments out, let people see what they're like. And, and we're actually inspired by our own instruments. If somebody visits the Martin factory, what do they see? Well, we have uh, really uh, s several things. The, the, the primary thing that people come for is to take the tour of the, of the factory. And PCN has done a magnificent tour. Uh, thank you for thank that. You, thank you. And uh, I get phone calls all the time from, uh, from people that see it and, and say, hey, I saw you on TV last night. Um, but unlike a lot of factories where, you, where the tour is kind of cooked up or, or not really the same as the actual manufacturing process, the Martin tour is the actual uh, 550 employees that we have now. Uh, the succession of hundreds of steps in the in the crafting of a guitar, so uh, it's very popular tour. Uh, one of the um, uh, in one of the books called "Made It Watch It Made in the USA," the tour was rated the number one tour in the United States. And when you're finished with the tour and you've seen all the guitar making, it's usually a pretty good sales tool for us. People come off the tour wanting to own a Martin guitar, and they really understand uh, the, the detail and the level of craftsmanship that goes onto the inside, the part of the guitar that you never see. Um, after the tour, we have a gift shop that's uh, really great. In the back of the gift shop for uh, uh, guitarists that want to play some serious guitars, we have about 15 uh, instruments that you, you probably wouldn't find uh, easily in a music store, pretty high-end. Um, instruments that you can try out. In the lobby, we have uh, what we call the bangers. Uh, we get a lot of school groups, and the kids come, <laughs> and they really bang on the guitars, and we've got guitars for them to, to play. We want people to start young. And then we have the, the Martin Museum, which is um, uh, a project really close to my heart. I consider it a, an extension of the Martin Archives. Uh, and we have, at any given time, about 220 guitars on display. Um, that's uh, about one-fifth or one-sixth of our total collection. And we have a tremendous amount of smaller artifacts on display as well with the guitars. And uh, the intent of the museum is to tell the story of Martin guitars from the 1830s all the way up to uh, present day and how Martin is, I love this word, inextricably interwoven with American culture and history. What's your job with Martin? I've, ha I've had many jobs at Martin. I've been really lucky to kind of define my jobs, but right now I'm the uh, archivist and historian, and I'm also in charge of the museum. I have an uh, extraneous title of special projects, 
and this could be considered a special project. Um, I'm involved with exhibitions. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware that Martin was on display at the museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City for an entire year. These were the instruments of C.F. Martin Sr. from 1833 uh, up to about 1855. Um, the reason for that exhibit was that uh, Martin is credited with really the invention of the uh, acoustic guitar as we know it today. Uh, I have to, you brought along a lot of uh, toys, and this one is a, a log book from the, from the factory from 1836? Yeah, 1836, 1836 through 1839. Uh, it's incredible that the Martin family saved so much. I mean, there are, there are holes in, in the archives. There, are, there uh, are certain years that we don't have a lot of records, but this, uh, this beautiful, beautiful log book in, in the uh, elegant uh, handwriting, I'm sure he did these entries by candlelight after a full day of work. Um, you know, at his little roll-top desk. Um, beautiful, beautiful journal that, that records all of the transactions that he made in his store. And, uh, you know, this is a time period in New York City where he was selling uh, violin strings, he was doing repairs, flugelhorns, flutes, uh, all types of uh, stringed instruments, including, of course, guitars, which was his real love. So he... Um, uh, he really focused on all types of music until 1839 when he came to Nazareth. Now, I, I imagine there were a lot of guitar makers around in the 1800s, but... Actually, no. What, no, there was uh, almost none. Was Martin always at the top of the heap? Well, he was the first. So uh, he was the first serious uh, maker of guitars in the United States. There was somebody that followed about uh, 15 years later called Ashbourne. And Ashbourne was more of a uh, factory. Uh, uh, lots of employees, uh, kind of uh, the early industrial revolution, uh, mass production, uh, a very small number of models, one shape. Uh, Martin had six or seven different shapes early on. So uh, what Ashbourne did was made, uh, because the guitar was just becoming popular, Ashbourne took advantage of uh, a lower price, a higher, a higher production. Martin focused always on uh, attention to de detail, exquisite tone, high, uh, uh, the highest level of materials, and uh, an Ashbourne more uh, mass production. Oh, oh, I wanted to ask you about the, the people at the factory now who make the guitars. Do, does Martin scan the world for the best luthiers and bring them to Nazareth to build guitars? We have a couple of people that have come from the outside, but, but usually uh, we, we don't want somebody to uh, bring a preconceived notion of uh, what they think a guitar should be. We want uh, our tradition, our design, uh, which is really evolutionary and very specific. Uh, we want to teach people what that is. And usually the way that works is when, when a new worker comes in, They'll work uh, adjacent to somebody at a bench, uh, the neck fitter or the, the brace shaper. They'll work adjacent, and they'll learn the job over a period of a uh, couple of months until they're completely confident in that job. The other thing that happens is on, uh, at vacation time, when uh, 
maybe uh, the brace shaper goes on vacation and somebody comes over from another department and learns the job while they're off. So in that respect, we get a, a lot of cross-training and it's very valuable for our employees to learn as many different jobs as possible. What's the trickiest one? What's the one you need the most training to get right? Well, I can tell you this from personal experience because I've built some really terrible guitars <laughs> on my own in my own investigation uh, uh, of luthery. And I have to say that um, bending the sides is uh, a particular skill. It's difficult. It takes a, a, a good amount of pra uh, practice. Um, but I think the most difficult job is fitting the neck to the body in the traditional method. Uh, Martin uses a, a compound dovetail, which is uh, very confusing. Um, the reason it's confusing is if you shave material from this side, it throws the neck the opposite direction and vice versa. And you, you need to be able to throw the neck left and right. You need to be able to pitch it up and down, all with very complex angles that are mirrored by a male dovetail on the neck and a, and a matching female dovetail in the body. It has to be perfect, uh, and we're talking about uh, uh, measurements that really can't even be seen. It has to be perfect for the guitar to be playing uh, perfectly. How much of the work is still done by hand? Well, surprising amount. It's not that we don't have technology. In fact, if we didn't use technology, we probably would not be competitive in the marketplace. So uh, for the uh, the cutting out of parts, uh, we're, we're now using lasers to cut the parts out where in the past we used bandsaws. Um, we have uh, sanding machines. We don't have to do uh, hand scraping as much as we, as we used to. But basically the parts uh, are cut out using very high technology and then they're brought upstairs uh, for hand assembly. Uh, the, the body gets hand assembled. Um, Braces are carved uh, using the chisel still. Uh, necks come uh, to a certain degree of completion, sometimes requiring uh, some handwork with rasps and draw knives, uh, the traditional tools. But um, uh, mostly hand processes uh, up until the point of lacquering. And lacquering, we use uh, robotics, which is a real shock to the people that come to Martin and expect to see Geppetto <laughs> at the workbench with a whittling knife uh, and, a, and a log uh, whittling the guitar. So the, what, the, um, what the robotics has enabled us to accomplish is uh, perfect consistency with the thickness of the lacquer. Lacquer plays a, a very uh, critical role in the tone of an instrument. If you spray lacquer uh, thickly, it's gonna deaden the tone of the instrument. So you want it uh, uh, almost as thick as a human hair when it's all done so that it doesn't interfere. And to accomplish that, um, having control, the robotic control where you can, you can uh, uh, adjust, uh, adjust the thickness of the, the film that you're spraying. Do guitars improve with age? Pretty tremendously. Uh, and that's not to say that, that uh, it isn't possible to make a guitar that right off the bat sounds magnificent. Um, the, the instruments that I, I, you know, I'm playing a guitar uh, every day, many guitars, uh, just out of curiosity, how's this one sound? How's this one sound? They sound magnificent. 
But there's no question that, that in the first 30 days to three months, the lacquer is actually shrinking in size, uh, d expelling its solvents, and, and getting used to vibrating uh, as one with the, with the top and back and sides of the instrument. So there's a, a significant um, loss of weight and um, uh, tonal improvement in the first three months. Over the next three to five years, the, the guitar really uh, settles in seasonally, shrinking and expanding. The, the heat comes on in November, the guitar shrinks. The humidity happens in, in, uh, in the spring and lasts through the summer, the guitar expands. That expansion and contraction um, eventually ends up uh, where the guitar adjusts uh, and feels comfortable in its environment. And if it's played, it really benefits from being played. The third thing that happens is uh, uh, what we would refer to as torrefaction. It's a fairly new term because it can be done synthetically, but this is where the cellular structure of the wood uh, actually dispenses all the moisture. And, and I, I like to have to be careful with this word, pithy, P-I-T-H-Y. It, it, it's the very dry, powdery feel of, of the wood. And it happens after maybe 30 or 40 years. Uh, if, you, if you have an old uh, uh, plank of wood in your basement and you scratch it with your fingernail, it uh, comes off as powder. No more moisture. And the result of that is, is of uh, stability and a, and a very dry sound. You, you told a story once about, I think it was Neil Young before he played oh, yeah. guitar would put it in a room with loudspeakers playing. Is there anything to that? Actually... Uh, his guitar tech, uh, who is nicknamed Grandpa, his guitar tech had a uh, shoulder massager. Uh, it's big, almost like a jackhammer with a, a big rubber uh, uh, tip on it. And he would, uh, before, the, before every show, he would go onto the wings or the edges of the bridge and excite it. And there is something to that, you know. Um, I notice uh, I have a guitar uh, that uh, I love. It's an orchestra model, a smaller instrument. If I play it for a, a couple of minutes, it's almost like the guitar hasn't woken up. But after 15 or 20 minutes of playing and, and, and getting used to vibrating again, it does wake up and it starts to uh, really sing. So th I think there is some truth to it. I think there's also a little bit of voodoo involved. How many guitars a year does Martin make? Oh boy, I, I think we're uh, we're in the vicinity of 130 to 140 thousand guitars in a year. Now you have to understand these are all different levels. Uh, these are all fancy D45s. There's some very simple guitars. There's some student models and the backpackers and and the little Martins that Ed Sheeran plays. But, and then the standard, uh, the standard guitars that you think of and associate with Martin. I guess we should talk a little more about the book. Um, the Martin is, is distinctive for the logo across the top, the scroll, the CF Martin. And we have two different logos, but the, um, the logo started as a decal in, in 1930. Um, instruments before that were simply hot, hot branded on the back of the neck. Um, 
We also uh, introduced uh, uh, the, the higher priced Style 45 logo. A real expensive C.F. Martin. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's on the, on the upper end, the, the Style 45 instruments. When did uh, they come up with the shape? It has a distinct head shape that uh, no other guitarist well, has. Well, we actually have that trademarked, uh, even though everybody seems to want to copy us anyway. Um, the shape, actually, uh, we attribute to the island off the coast of, uh, uh, I think, uh, off the coast of Spain, called Cadiz. Uh, and the, the shape was more of a paddle, uh, more like this. And gradually, uh, uh, um, Martin brought it in and, and kind of considered a shaker type of shape. Very simple uh, and practical. We should, uh, again, uh, about the book, I, I found in here you have a letter written by C.F. Martin III, traveling salesman. So right. th they would actually take to the road, and the owner of the company, and to sell guitars? Well, you know, in the office there was, there was uh, a secretary. There was uh, uh, C.F.'s father, Frank Henry, and, and uh, C.F. III, and that was really, that was the extent of the office. So uh, for... In the early days, they had a di distributors. Uh, there was this fellow named Zobisch, one of their German friends. Zobisch wa uh, was in New York City. He wasn't doing a very good job, and they eventually felt they needed to uh, let him go in the 1890s. Uh, at that point, the Martin family took over, and you know, cars were just uh, uh, starting to appear during this time period. And in fact, uh, C.F. III's younger, younger brother, Herbert, uh, was going to be the salesman. He had this, he was kind of the cat about town. He was handsome. The women liked him. And he, and, uh, he would drive all over New England and taking orders from all the music stores. And, and uh, he was slated to be the salesman. But he died of appendicitis uh, in, in his mid-30s, leaving uh, the business uh, uh, to be run by his father and his brother, C.F., and so the, the letter you're referring to in the book has to do with uh, C.F. taking over after his brother passed away. How did they market them beyond that? Was it all face-to-face, -face or did they have catalogs? Or well, you know, I think it's really build a better mousetrap kind of story. Um, the guitars were so good that they de uh, developed from the onset, from as early as the Martins were in the United States, that these were not a commodity, that they had uh, a magnificent tone, like a Stradivari violin. Uh, you can relate to that. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of this is word of mouth, uh, from musician to musician. What's That guitar sounds magnificent. What is that? And, and, and so everybody seemed to want to gravitate to own one. And uh, everybody from Jimmy Rogers and Gene Autry and Hank Williams and Elvis Presley and the Beatles and Paul Simon and you name it, Crosby, Stills and Nash, everybody uh, has contributed to the history of Martin. Uh, according to your book, the Beatles, John Lennon and Paul McCartney took Martin D-28s to India when they spent time with the Maharishi and most of the White Album was written on Martin d Actually, uh, starting with Magical Mystery Tour and then the White Album, Abbey Road, and Let It Be, all three, uh, all three albums influenced pretty heavily 
by the 42 songs that they wrote on their Martin guitars. These would be songs like Mother Nature's Son and Blackbird, um, beautiful, beautiful acoustic songs, Julia that John Lennon wrote, uh, um, beautiful acoustic songs that appeared on those albums. Well, we could probably turn to any page and you could discourse on what we came up with. But as I was picking this up to show the C.F. Martin one, this, this fell out. Martin String Instruments, it's a catalog from 19... I think that's 36. 1936. 1936. The reason that we put that in there is because this is the first catalog that Martin's Dreadnought uh, appeared in. The Dreadnought is our kind of our flagship, uh, our, our big guitar. It's the guitar that was uh, initiated in 1916, invented by Martin, and, and named after a British battleship, the largest Brit Brit British battleship of its class. And the Dreadnought really came of age in the 1930s when microphones were uh, just beginning to be used on stage. And, you know, those big, beautiful, uh, uh, you know, the Neumanns and everything, the beautiful RCA microphones. Um, the guitar had been really a rhythm uh, instrument that was in the background of most uh, orchestras. And, and with the microphone, the guitar came forward, center stage, and really became, uh, uh, it contributed to the dawn of singer-songwriting and country folk music. Well, this catalog says Martin guitars, mandolins, and ukuleles. Does, does yeah. Martin still make mandolins or ukuleles? We don't make mandolins anymore. It's a very specific uh, market, and, and the um, uh, our mandolins are uh, very, very loud, but they're not the choppy kind of mandolin that's popular with bluegrass bands. So we, we uh, stopped making mandolins uh, several decades ago, but we still make ukuleles, ukuleles. And um, the uh, ukulele has experienced several different um, uh, kind of waves of popularity. The first being kind of the Roaring Twenties. Uh, it just took off. and, and Hawaiian music and Hawaiian culture spread virally across the United States. And uh, in fact, Martin made many, many more ukuleles and guitars during that time. You could uh, buy a Martin ukulele from the, in the 20s for about $5. They're worth about, if you bought one for $5 back then, worth several thousand dollars today. Uh, after Pearl Harbor and World War II, uh, maybe you remember Elvis Presley in Blue Hawaii and Marilyn Monroe with the ukulele. And there was a second wave because of uh, Hawaii and Hawaii becoming a state and um, a second wave of uh, uh, ukulele popularity. And then more recently, and I think spurred on partly by George Harrison and his love of ukuleles, as well as uh, Jake Shimamukuro, a really great uh, ukulele player, um, that there's a new surge in popularity. Uh, how has Martin uh, fared uh, as the economy has gone up and down over the years? I mean, is it is it cyclical with the economy, and, and how did you do during the Depression? Well, we hope it isn't. <laughs> but, uh, in fact, I, keep, I do keep charts uh, of uh, sales records, uh, and it's, it would seem that if you look at the charts, uh, the number of guitars made, it does uh, fluctuate a good deal. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, uh, the 
World War I, the Great Depression, World, lots of different changes, including the disco era, and, and uh, all of these things having tremendous impact upon Martin's uh, uh, annual successes. So it seemed to me that, that almost in 11-year in waves, uh, that Martin would surge in popularity and then, and then go, uh, go out of favor slightly and then come back and, and that this was repeating. But more recently, uh, in fact, under the um, uh, ownership and control of C.F. Martin IV, Chris Martin, the company just really took off. And uh, there wasn't any fluctuation. We've seen a little bit of, of uh, downturn in the marketplace uh, recently. I think people got really distracted by the American political elections uh, of the fall uh, to the extent that they stopped doing everything. Um, hopefully that's over, uh, or at least part of it's over. And um, there's also a, a shift from brick and mortar music stores towards online. And this is a little uh, difficult for us because we want people to uh, experience a guitar before they buy it by actually hearing it. Uh, there's tremendous differences, uh, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle at all, differences in tone of instruments that really need to be heard. And also in the comfortability, uh, the action, the playability, of every specific instrument. So we, uh, we believe in brick and mortar stores, but clearly the trend is more towards online shopping. So you can buy three different Martin D28s and set them side by side that are made at the same time and they have individual characteristics? They do. With the, with, within the confines of any specific model, and we have more than 100 different models, uh, if you were to line up 10 D28s, you would find that they are tremendously consistent in in every respect, uh, including tone. But if you but if you get right down to it, and you play those ten instruments, you're going to find uh, six or seven that are very close in tone. You're going to find one or two that have kind of a shimmery treble, and you're going to find uh, one or two that have a kind of a thick, throaty bass response. What causes the difference between them? It's uh, the wood. The, every piece of wood is different, and, and every piece of wood contributes a different element to the tone. Where do you get your wood? Well, this is becoming more and more of a problem. Uh, I'm sure you've, all, you've heard uh, of the problems with, uh, with sourcing wood, but we get our wood from all over the world. Um, the uh, rosewood often comes from India, um, mahogany from South America or Central America, uh, some plantation mahoganies in other different regions. Uh, we get ebony from Africa and, and Ceylon and, and sometimes India. Uh, we get spruce from the Pacific Northwest, but also the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. We get spruce from the Italian Alps and from the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, we get uh, other types of rosewood from different regions, uh, uh, tropical regions. We get koa wood from Hawaii. Um, all of the woods are under uh, a fair amount of pressure, partly from um, irresponsible uh, harvesting. Um, 
this is not the result of guitar making, believe me. It's more the result of um, uh, furniture making or uh, uh, plywood uh, construction. Uh, a lot of this uh, problem emanates in the Asian basin uh, with Chinese manufacturing that doesn't necessarily have to follow the same rules and regulations that, that we in America have to follow. So this is frustrating for us, but, uh, but we are always focused on using the best uh, traditional materials as well as experimenting with uh, uh, new and viable tone woods. You have a little tag in the book that, uh, <laughs> about uh, elephants and about how Martin was no longer using ivory in its guitars. Yeah, uh, ivory, uh, it, it's a beautiful material, there's no question. Uh, uh, but in this day and age, there's, there's no excuse for uh, the use of, of ivory or the use of any material that, that is harmful to animals or the environment. So, so um, Martin really stopped using ivory for bridges uh, and bindings back as early as around 1911 uh, in that basic time period. We had small pieces of ivory that were used for the, the fulcrum, the nut and the saddle of the guitar up until the, the time of this little elephant hang tag when Martin made a, uh, a decision in the, in the 60s to suspend uh, ivory use. So now we're a, a major proponent for protecting elephants. Now you have one picture in the book of uh, Chris Martin IV holding a GT75 Martin electric guitar. Right. What's the story of Martin and electric guitars? Well, we have quite a history with, with uh, electric guitars back uh, when... Uh, Really, in the 1930s, we started getting inquiries. Hey, do you have anything electric? In fact, there was a, a, friend, a, a fellow named Fred Clay that wanted to have his guitar electrified, and his Martin guitar, and we didn't really have anything. So he went into a small radio and television shop in California uh, owned by Leo Fender, and, he, and Leo Fender took some television parts and, and put together this huge pickup, uh, uh, cut big holes in the guitar and everything. The very first guitar that Leo Fender ever worked on was a Martin guitar. Four years later, he started his, his business. Martin dabbled in electric guitars or trying to amplify guitars. Uh, uh, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, the group Nirvana on MTV Unplugged, you can see that he's playing a Martin guitar that has two uh, electric guitar pickups uh, on the top. Um, that was done in the 60s. Um, and Martin dabbled at different times in producing uh, semi-hollow body as well as solid body electric guitars, but always with very little success. And we always uh, gave up and went back to what we were good at, which is making flat top steel string guitars. Made banjos for a while? We made the Vega banjos, and we, we made some banjos back in the 1910-1920 uh, time period. Once again, very small market like mandolins, that, and we just uh, needed to focus on what we did best. You have one chapter in here called The Awkward Years, 1970 to 1986, when uh, the company was under the leadership of Frank Martin. Yeah. Uh, so Chris Martin's father, uh, he came in uh, at a time when the Kingston Trio 
and the folk revival, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Bob Dylan, uh, the Weavers. Um, acoustic guitars were so popular, and Martin, Martin sales were just going through the roof. In fact, during that time, we moved out of our North Street factory and built our new factory just to be able to get rid of a four-year backlog in guitars. So Frank Martin benefited uh, from this. Uh, uh, the sales were tremendous. And he, his vision of the company was to uh, uh, grow the business by buying up other businesses, like Vega Banjo, Fibes Drum Company, um, Manos Woods Drumsticks, um, Darko Strings, uh, Musical Strings, uh, even a, a, a veterinarian software company, which had nothing to do with music. So all of these uh, uh, all of these companies were a diversion for Martin Guitars, and, uh, and we really took our eye off the ball. Um, eventually, all of those businesses, with the exception of our string company, which is now Martin Strings, they were all sold off, and we got back to focusing on, on steel string guitars. And Frank Martin left the business, uh, moved to Florida, left the business in the control of his father, C.F. III, and his son, C.F. IV, who uh, C.F. IV mentored with his grandfather and really uh, uh, did a good job. C.F. III lived to age 95, was it? 92. 92. 92. And he was, uh, I would call him a preservationist. I knew him quite well because I, uh, uh, he had fallen and he couldn't drive anymore. So he loved to go to the Lions Club meeting. He was a, a charter member of the Nazareth Lions Club. And he invited me to join the Lions Club so that I could drive him to the meetings. And this was kind of like driving Miss Daisy. And for me, it was just an incredible experience. In fact, um, a lot of the stories that CF told me in the car driving to the Lions Club meeting are available to the purchase, purchasers of this book uh, online. There's a code number on the inside of each book that enables uh, the book owner to go online and download um, a speech that C.F. Martin III gave in 1985, a year before he passed away. And it's just a magnificent talk. Have the Martins, the, the C.F.s through the years, been guitar players? Well, some of them have, but, but uh, I'd say most of them it has not been a, a, a priority. The priority has been more with the craft of woodworking uh, or the running of a business. Um, C.F. Martin's wife, C.F. Martin Sr.'s wife, Otilia, was a, a pretty good harpist as well as guitar player. And I'm sure that C.F. Martin Sr. was adept enough to be able to assess the tone of, of the guitars. And that certainly would have been true of any of the Martins. But Chris Martin specifically was pressured so much as a child to uh, take lessons and, and he really uh, uh, was pressured too much to the extent that he didn't enjoy it. So I'd say that he's an expert at instrument design and running the business. Was the current Chris Martin part of the company all along? Well, he's, uh, I'm, I'm 67 years old. Chris Martin is five years younger than I am. 
And he's been involved ever since he was about 20 years old. He, came, he came to, started to come to work uh, during summers. Uh, and uh, gradually, you know, he didn't start out high up in the company. He, start, he went through a lot of stages. He worked in a music store one summer, uh, worked in the string division, uh, uh, worked in sales, and gradually worked his way up. So he, pr pretty much most of his life. And we shouldn't leave out C.F. the second, who ran the company, was it for close to 60 years? It was actually, uh, C.F. the second actually died uh, in his early 60s. Mm. Uh, prematurely, it was Frank Henry Martin that ran the company for 60 years. Ah. And he started as a tw uh, 22 years old, I believe he was, when, when his father, C.F. Jr., died. You know, it's always a tenuous situation when there's a change uh, uh, in ownership or a change in generations uh, for any company. I mean, most family businesses don't survive the first generation. And then if you take the ones that do, most of those don't survive the second. The reason they don't is because there's usually a fragmenting of the business, and it comes from either too many children fighting over uh, the crumbs, uh, but none of that seemed to uh, happen with Martin. I mean, we've, we've had transitional challenges, but uh, pretty smooth uh, in comparison to uh, other family businesses. Was there ever a, a time when uh, the company was in danger of going out of business or the, the family in danger of losing control of the company? Yes. Uh, I started at the company in 1976, and Frank Martin was the pr president, uh, Chris's father. And during this time period, the, the uh, business was very good. And like I said, uh, Frank was acquiring all these different companies. He was also involved with sports teams, and he had a racing car. And I think the perception was that, uh, uh, that he was benefiting more than the employees were. Uh, and the result was that the workers formed a union and went on strike in, in the late 1970s. And the strike was very painful to the company. Uh, production fell to a, a, an amazingly low point and almost uh, uh, brought the company to its knees. Fortunately, um, the workers resigned from the union. Uh, business came back. Uh, Chris's father, Frank, eventually left the business. And from the moment that Chris Martin took over, uh, things really started to uh, uh, improve on so many different levels. As you were talking, I was flipping through the, the book and came across one, 1928, where there is Babe Ruth playing a Martin guitar. <laughs> yeah, and you know, if you look at, at, at the chord that he's playing, I'm not sure that that's a, 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 a real chord. Not a real chord. <laughs> but uh, the story there is that uh, uh, they were doing fundraising for Al Smith who was uh, uh, running for president, I think. Uh, and um, Against Herbert Hoover. That's right. So uh, they were all supporters of Al Smith, and they got the entire Yankees team to uh, uh, sign uh, this little 0021 Martin guitar. And that's uh, Lou Gehrig standing next to uh, Babe. And uh, uh, that guitar is very, very valuable. And we don't actually know where it is. It sold at auction. Uh, about a decade ago, and, and it's missing in action, is part a, of some collection. Is there a holy grail of Martin guitars out there that you'd love to find? Well, we found them all. 
pretty much. I mean, for our museum, and this is another um, uh, accolade that I can bestow upon Chris Martin, that, that he really was terrific in, in investing in uh, filling the holes in our museum collection. Um, there are specific models. Uh, you've just flipped to one, which is the D45, the top of our line. It, it's considered the holy grail of acoustic guitars. There was only 91 made, and uh, they're not all accounted for. But uh, that guitar would have sold in the 1930s or early 1940s for about $250. And in the marketplace today, you'd be lucky to find one for $250,000. The one that Eric Clapton played on the MTV Unplugged concert has some renown. Well, uh, certainly the fact that, that any great musician played a, a guitar contributes a great deal to its value. But Eric's guitar was a 1939 0 uh, Actually, I'm sorry, he had several. A 1939 0 42 Fairly fancy model, but not all the not top of the line, but almost top of the line. And uh, Eric's guitar, when he was raising money for his uh, Crossroads Center in Antigua, he put that guitar into the auction, and, and it brought uh, I think nine hundred nine hundred and seventy thousand dollars, which uh, is about nine hundred and uh, nine hundred and sixty thousand dollars more than what it would be uh, back, in, back in 1939, you know. I, maybe $100 back then. We, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the people who have played Martin guitars, about the Beatles and Eric Clapton and, and uh, Mabel Carter. You have a picture in here of uh, Lester Flatt, of Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs fame. Who else springs to mind that would be uh, everyday names that are Martin well, guitar players? Who doesn't? I mean, uh, it's almost difficult to find somebody that, that doesn't. You know, uh, I love Bruce Springsteen. And uh, for the better part of 20 years, Bruce was inseparable from his Martin guitar. Jim Croce, uh, Hank Williams, um, of course, Elvis Presley, um, uh, the Kingston Trio, uh, uh, Pete Seeger. Um, Doc Watson. Doc, Wa Doc Watson. Um, Andy Griffith. You, you know, we all grew up watching the Andy Griffith yeah. show, and, and Andy would play, uh, you get a line, I get a pole, honey. <laughs> and that's always with the, the Martin D-18. So where do you go from here, in, in both in business and technology? Well, I think, I think the next uh, couple of decades are going to be a challenge with respect to the tone woods. And as I said, that's one of the reasons why we've experimented and done our homework uh, uh, identifying alternative woods that are um, in many cases certif uh, uh, FSC certified woods, Forest Stewardship Council. Um, there are woods in Pennsylvania. Uh, cherry is a, is a reasonable wood for guitar making and we have some of the best stands of cherry anywhere in the United States right here in northwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, there's uh, uh, a lot of spruce that grows uh, up in upstate New York and into southern Canada that is very viable. Um, some spruce down in the Appalachian Mountains of the Carolinas and Kentucky. Um, really, there's really two traditional tonewoods, mahogany and rosewood. Uh, 
Mahogany is very light in weight and contributes to a treble response in a guitar. Um, rosewood is heavier in weight and contributes more to a, a, a rich, resonant, warm bass response. So you've got heavy versus light, and there, there's a ton of wood. Virtually all the other species of wood fall between them. So um, there's tremendous viability with many different species, and we've built guitars out of almost all of them. And uh, with special attention to, de to detail and thicknessing and using the right piece of wood for the right part of the guitar, it's possible to uh, make great instruments. And that's what we're going to be doing for many generations to come. The last picture in your book is about the uh, Martin guitar that was played on the space shuttle. <laughs> well, How'd you arrange that? Actually, I got a phone call from the astronaut. His name was Pierre Thuet. And this was 1994. He was going up on a space shuttle, uh, I think uh, STS-64, uh, I think it was, and the Columbia. And uh, he, w he played in a band in Houston, Texas. I think the band was called Quantum Force. And uh, he wanted to be the first uh, astronaut to, to uh, play guitar in outer space. And, and we loved the idea. He sent us dimensions of, of the compartment on board the shuttle that was each astronaut was allowed a small compartment of uh, personal effects. And the compartment was so small that, that we didn't have any instrument that would fit in it. So uh, working with Bob McNally, who is the inventor of the backpacker guitar, that's the little travel guitar that looks like Gumby. And uh, Bob uh, uh, co collaborated with Martin and built two of these little space guitars, uh, one of which we flew down to uh, Houston and watched the flight. Off they went. It was very emotional to see the space shuttle be launched. Beautiful, beautiful golden plume. And uh, so he's up there with this little guitar floating uh, spaceless, uh, uh, weightless, and playing the instrument. And he was on the Today, Today Show, national TV. And so uh, uh, to boldly go where no guitar has gone before. I wish we could keep talking, but we are out of time. This is the cover of the book we've been talking about, The C.F. Martin Archives, A Scrapbook of Treasures from the World's Foremost Acoustic Guitar Maker. Dick Boak, thank you very much. Thanks. I always love coming to PCN, one of the greatest uh, TV stations in the country, <laughs> let alone Pennsylvania. Well, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.